say China wins a war, what happens next? To discuss, I have Jude Blanchett and Gerard DePippo, both CSIS scholars, on the show today with China Talk. So recently you two wrote a paper exploring the economic and political and geopolitical as well consequences of China prevailing in a conflict where they take over Taiwan. I'm curious why you started with that as the premise for your future scenario analysis. I think a few reasons we focused on this. Number one was it was the most salient gap in extant analysis on Taiwan. It was the sort of portion of, you know, of major articles conceptualizing a conflict in Taiwan where there was sort of a yada, 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 um, or, you know, et cetera, part of it. Um, And when Gerard and I started thinking through, you know, A, if you want to understand how a conflict would actually unfold, you can't um, abstract out or ignore the financial, economic, diplomatic realities that would occur alongside of and as a result of of a conflict. Um, Two, if you want to conceptualize what Beijing's likely cost equation is and how they're conceptualizing the, the risks or benefits of an attack invasion or a blockade of Taiwan, again, you, you can't, you can't yada, 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 what the likely or, or plausible economic, financial, diplomatic uh, realities would be. So the point of this exercise, which I, I hope we we flagged clearly enough, is very much speculative. We're working off a set of qualitative assumptions. This was a thought experiment um, that we hope to sketch in the details further. Um, but but it seems to us that this is a good starting point of, look, if one bullet is fired by the PLA in and around the Taiwan Strait, that's not part of an exercise. You start to see that the economic and financial consequences for China start to mount pretty, pretty quickly. So we just wanted to start thinking through that. Gerard, so did I let's miss stay anything? On the, let's stay on the sort of meta question for a second. Why do you think the sort of possibility of China winning as well as the the economic and political consequences of uh, of a conflict more generally are not something that has garnered a lot of attention, even given uh, sort of uh, potential conflict being so front and center for so many folks around the world? Well, on the first question, I would speculate that, um, I mean, at least observe that there's a fair amount of analysis on what the potential run-up to a conflict might be, and then less, but still a fair amount of analysis on how that conflict might go down. But there's actually not a lot on what the world after would look like uh, and what that would mean for China and others. On the second question, which I think is actually related, is you know why, why are, is the emphasis on things like the military aspects and not the diplomatic or economic side? I think because the diplomatic and economic aspects are in some ways more speculative. They're less sort of uh, focused on the on the widgets of military analysis. And from the economic perspective, there actually aren't that many economists uh, working in the, in the sort of national security domain that would work on these, these types of questions. I mean, academic economists would, would never get tenure for writing a paper like this, for example, right? So uh, and even within the U.S. government, where I used to work, there are some, like at CIA, who would who would dabble in, in these types of analyses. But generally speaking, if you're like a desk economist, this, this is not what you're writing about. So I thought we were just uh, trying to bridge a gap there. Um, all right. So let's run with your premise. Um, you guys break this up into three phases. What happens diplomatically and economically 
when war is imminent. One point that is worth making is Gerard and I had to adopt a fairly nondescript conception of what conflict was. If Beijing does contemplate an, an attack in any imminent sense, one thing it will have in mind is precisely how does it undertake an attack in a way that makes direct blaming of China or, or anti-China coalition more difficult to form. So we had to assume away a lot of those just to get to um, a, a position of, you know, China is successful, right? So I just wanted to make that general caveat. Uh, um, how, how robust is that, uh, Jude and Gerard? Well, we were deliberately vague about the military aspects, but I think if the point is to get to an end state where there is both conflict and China essentially prevails, at least in a territorial sense, um, it's hard to imagine China achieving that without there being observable uh, steps being taken. And the world, including the United States, would respond to those steps. And that's really what we're trying to flesh out here. So, um, like, you know, could you imagine a scenario where there's like some super stealth, fast sneak attack to decapitate the Taiwan government and they like occupy Taipei somehow? Maybe, but that's that's not our baseline. So we're assuming that, that most of the implications of what we're running through here should be fairly robust to our admittedly vague assumptions. Just another point I want to just to highlight is we did try in the analysis to say what could a clean success or a low cost success for China to look like, just to be fair. You know, you can imagine a world, although I think it's low probability, you know, where China is able to, as Gerard said, go in quick and fast without a real significant observable buildup, decapitate the Taipei leadership, face minimal to zero on island resistance. And then I think critically, basically have the whole world shrug, right? Um, so that there's no continuing sort of after invasion backlash from the global community. Um, and, and again, another possible scenario here is that China is able to um, create a scenario where its action on Taiwan is, is understood by a significant enough number of, of the sort of international community to be defensive, right? Yeah. Um, so now I don't, you know, that could be they claim that there was an attack on a PLAN destroyer by the Taiwans and that they had, you know, no, no, no choice. Um, you know, so you can imagine some scenarios there, but um, those are probably there's a fairly narrow path China would be able to travel on that. But it is worth highlighting those because our analysis does assume really critically that there is a observable buildup, B, that even if China tries to to control the messaging such that it is on the defensive, realistically, this will be seen by at least advanced economies as an offensive, aggressive move. And that B, it is going to be facing some non-trivial amount of resistance on the island such that it isn't a clean day one victory, but it's actually day two through day end where China will be dealing with some degree of on-island resistance that, again, is non-trivial. Yeah. Um, you know, th thinking to thinking about Ukraine for a second, there there was a timeline where something like this could have potentially happened uh, with Putin and Zelensky uh, in, in February of 22. And we, we didn't live in that timeline because there was resistance and there was observable buildup and they didn't win in a week. You know, that landing on the airstrip was was uh, was sort of repelled and you didn't have a sort of clean clean decapitation. But I do think it's and, and and we would be living in a very scary world if it did, um, because you have to imagine that that sort of thing would have would have um, uh, really uh, uh, 
uh, had some light bulbs go off in them. Uh, uh, yep. On that, on the Ukraine scenario, that alternate timeline, I think, was actually the baseline analysis both in Moscow and Washington. Yeah. So I, I haven't actually read the intel reports. I was out by that time. But my impression from the media is that while the U.S. government clearly was right about the intention and timing of, of the Russian invasion, that the U.S. assessment was actually something like what Russia was expecting, which is that the Ukrainian military would buckle fairly quickly and it might turn into something like, a, you know, a guerrilla counterinsurgency. Obviously, that's not what happened. But I think if that happened, it, it would have been a very different world. And in fact, I think a lot of the responses of, of you know, the U.S. and U.S. allies were premised on that assumption. So even a world where, you know, Ukraine resisted for, say, a month is is probably not one where we're still debating updating sanctions packages. Yeah, great. Great. So let's start going down the less of an edge case where even if China ultimately prevails, prevails, it's not, uh, you know, it's not like a third standard deviation positive uh, outcome for them. So um, what happens and what are the diplomatic and economic implications? So in phase one, which is the lead up to a Chinese attack, it's very important to keep in mind that the world doesn't exactly know what's going to happen. We are assuming, I think, reasonably that the United States and others would detect some signs. The U.S. might be warning the world and its allies about Chinese intentions similar to what happened with Russia. Uh, but, but you know, U.S. allies and certainly other countries may not believe that or they may not want to fully internalize the implications of that. That's also true for, for multinational firms and investors, right? So they're, they're going to be operating under conditions of extreme uncertainty. And if you assume the perhaps improbable, really bad outcome is going to happen, that entails a whole set of aggressive actions like divestment that a lot of companies are not going to want to do, right? So I actually think there's going to be a lot of, or would be a lot of sort of wishing that this is going to pass. Uh, you would see things like, you know, um, stock markets, commodity markets responding. Basically, portfolio investors would be the ones that would be the first to respond. Yeah. But let's say direct investors, so those that are in China, either to export from China or for the Chinese market, they're going to be probably more in wait and see mode. Um, and, and, you know, because what we would be talking about here is something that hasn't happened, anything like, you know, nothing like this has happened in, in modern history. And I think it's just going to be sort of waiting and hoping it will pass. You can imagine sort of what you could call liquid capital moving pretty quickly. I think a lot of this would depend, you know, how are, if we think about operational MNCs or direct investors, I think a lot of this would be the, the credibility of China's we're not going to invade messaging or obfuscation. And conversely, the credibility of U.S. Um, warnings about an invasion. So if you have something similar to, to what the United States was doing in Russia's buildup to Ukraine invasion, especially in a post-Russian invasion of Ukraine where the U.S. intelligence community and the senior leadership has a lot of credibility built up, yeah. if I think especially boards at MNCs are, are reading at the, the front page of the FT what looks like to be cre credible evidence that this time it's different and China is actually mobilizing for, for, for an attack, I, I think even in that pending phase, you might get more drastic, you know, behavior changes from MNCs than than we might expect. But again, that's really dependent on the credibility of of U.S. warnings. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting tension you bring up, because on the one hand, China would want to obfuscate and not tell folks, but also like, look, like they would prefer capital controls and nationalization to all of this money just 
sort of falling out of the country, which is about to be, as you guys um, write in your paper, subject to an enormous hit to uh, hit to GDP. Yeah. And, and Chinese leaders would know that this would be an incredibly risky act, right? So they would need to prepare their own population with propaganda, prepare the diplomatic space, obviously mobilize military forces and put in some economic measures to, to get the economy ready, including, as you mentioned, capital controls. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole separate probably project here on all of the ways China would launch an attack in defensive terms. Um, you know, I always think about the like 1931 Mukden incident, you know, where the Japanese blamed a railway explosion in Manchuria as a, you know, as the proximate cause for sending troops into into China. You know, we had the Gulf of Tonkin incident. You know, we I think it would we have to be conceptualizing ways in which China would 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 want to be able to credibly claim in diplomatic channels into the world that we were not the aggressor here. We were forced to. I don't know if China would be able to have that space if it was, uh, you know, a constitutional referendum in Taipei, for example. I think in China's head, that would be a provocation. Um, I'm not sure what the if the rest of the world would necessarily agree, even if they understood that for China, that was a red line. I'm not sure that would be necessarily swallowed as as sufficiently defensive for the world uh, to shrug. But I think it is an interesting problem set of what would be sufficiently credible claims of a defensive attack on China's part. Yeah, let's stay on the Constitution for a second. Uh, that sets up for a really sort of tricky scenario. And um, I don't know, maybe maybe a little detour into the 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 current Taiwan related legislation in 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 Congress, or is that too too far afield? I don't, well, I mean, just as a I, well, if I can just state my underlying premise for the whole paper, I don't I don't think China is actively planning for an attack. Um, you know, and part of this thought exercise was to get in the head of a, a remotely rational set of policymakers and defense planners in Beijing would understand that, you know, this is a, 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 an absolutely devastating course of, you know, course of action for China to take. But it is the case that a credible threat of invasion is the very foundation of China's deterrence on Taiwan. So there, you know, th this is the tension in China's policy is I think they know they you know, an invasion would result in a lot of the costs that are listed here, but they also need to credibly threaten an invasion because they feel like that's their ace card in their deterrence pack. I don't think on the, the Taiwan Policy Act, they're going to launch an invasion. They, they'll they'll do another, you know, Pelosi or, or McCarthy plus. Um, I do think it's really interesting what specifically they would do if there there was a more credible, clear move to de jure independence in Taiwan. But again, then I think you're thinking about, you know, things like occupations of outer islands, you know, Kim Min or Matsu, um, an, an all-out assault on the main island in Taiwan comes, I think, later. So we've been dancing around it, um, but we should get to the meat. So what, 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 why is this so bad for China? Once, once, uh, once the conflict really kicks off. Well, it's bad for China and the world. And the main reason it would be beyond disruptive to the global economy. There would be, it's, you know, far beyond the global financial crisis. Um, we're not just talking about financial reactions or, or, you know, commodity markets. It would be a conflict zone or an expected conflict zone that would be covering the most vital shipping lane in the world. And also would be within range of China's major ports. 
And China is the world's factory. It's the number one manufacturing exporter, right? And it's not just a question of so like, say, compared to Russia, you know, Russia, Russia's economy was one-tenth the size as, of China's. But the actual bigger thing, as Jude already mentioned, is that Russia's main avenues of trade are not disrupted physically. In this case, China's would be. And a lot of Asian trade is actually just basically providing inputs that then go into Chinese factories and then make goods and go elsewhere, right? And so it would be disruptive to the whole world. China in particular, though, because their export sector would be completely hammered. It's hard to know like how much disruptive, but assume it would be incredibly severe. If we're talking GDP, uh, I, no one has really done a good job of estimating this. I think part of the reason is that this kind of scenario is just well beyond the historical sample set that, that you use for you know econometric modeling. There was a RAND paper from 2016 called Thinking the Unthinkable that did attempt something like this, but it wasn't really econometric. And it was also using data that's almost a decade old, old now. But that, that you know, with the caveat given, had uh, China's GDP declining by 25 or 35 percent in, in, say, a year-long conflict and the U.S. GDP de declining by 5 or 10 percent. I suspect now, because of China's larger relative size, um, the pain is going to be a little more uh, balanced, but it'd still be more on the Chinese side. Um, and, and as Jude already mentioned, like basically China's key coastal provinces are going to be well within the range of aircraft and missiles. And it's not like, you know, something that I've seen others assert is like, how much can commercial shipping go around this? Like, could you escort ships or whatever? The reality is, if there actually are ships, naval ships blowing up and missiles yeah. flying, commercial traffic is not going through the straits and are not going into the ports that themselves are within the war zone. So just think of like a basically the global economy having a heart attack. Yeah, I think that some of the uh, some of the specific calculations of what cost would be partly also depend, as Gerard was just saying, on, on what we're saying the sort of conflict radius is. So, um, you know, I think even if you're using a relatively conservative conflict radius, you're implicating four or five of China's largest ports, which as Gerard said, we always need to have in the back of our head the costs that we're talking about China assuming are actually global economic costs. So this is, there, there's no clean victory for the United States uh, either here going the other way. The provinces which are, you know, which are directly abutting Taiwan um, account for about 20% of China's overall, uh, overall GDP. Um, and then if you start imagining what onshore activity is looking like, so you're going to imagine, first of all, um, anyone, you know, China's A shares are going are gonna to tank immediately. Part of this is going to be flight from risk. Part of this is going to be investors who are um, uh, also dumping, you know, equities on, on U.S. markets of Chinese companies. If, if, if a war is starting to break out, you're now looking at Alibaba, Tencent, you know, any U.S. Listed, listed equity is going to be seen as toxic, probably because you're expecting future sanctions by the United States. Um, I was in Beijing in 2015, 2016, after the, the, the stock market crash in China there. MNCs, foreign MNCs were having a hell of a time uh, getting, um, you know, uh, getting capital out. And there was clear window guidance from SAFE and PBOC to all the major state banks saying, first of all, triage. And in the triage, foreigners are last. Um, rich Chinese are second to last, you know, who are just trying to get their, you know, trying to move their money out. But you can imagine a scenario like that, where basically all the windows at the state banks are overflowing with companies trying to, you know, repatriate capital. 
you're going to also imagine an, an extraordinary amount of psychological sort of volatility for MNCs as they're thinking about personnel safety. Um, you know, they're going to be trying to find ways to get employees out, uh, especially sort of senior expat employees. So you're going to have this massive level of volatility and business sentiment that, again, even if you imagine sort of the conflict ends within 24 hours, the 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 now associated risk and toxicity of the Chinese market lingers on for an enduring amount of time. So even companies that aren't able to, you know, repatriate capital, aren't able to get employees out, it's then just a matter of time and finding windows to where they can. So you almost have like phases of the economic cost. One is the immediate one when there's actual conflict and all the attendant immediate responses from investors, you know, and FIEs. And then I think you have the long-term one of no marginal unit of capital is being invested in China by a foreign company, you know, certainly a, a sort of a G7 economy company after, you know, after that initial attack. Um, Gerard, how long does shipping need to be disrupted before you start thinking about famine? Well, China's a net importer of food. Um, I think Supply chain analysis, which is a, uh, you know, blossoming industry, but it's still in its infancy. Uh, it's hard. It's hard to know how all this stuff works. Um, China does make inputs like uh, certain types of agricultural products or machinery that are necessary for production elsewhere. But from a sort of raw commodities perspective, uh, China would be the one that that that's getting the bad end of it, right? Because they're a net importer, whereas say the U.S. or certainly North America is a net exporter of food. In terms of like whether actually be famine, I think you know. I'll actually use that opportunity to make a broader point. When, when you're talking about big shocks like this, part of why it's so hard to model them, even just qualitatively, is you have to get out of the mindset of thinking things will continue to operate the way they did in peacetime or to be a little more wonky, uh, to get out of the mindset of assuming prices are fixed. So people might say, oh, China needs you know X, X million tons of soybeans, which then go in to feed its pork. And you know the Chinese population loves eating pork and they won't have that. Okay. In a wartime situation, there will probably be massive spikes in pricing and or rationing. And I think the Chinese citizenry and, and also those elsewhere will just have to adjust. Would it literally be a famine? I'm actually pretty doubtful. I think that, that Chinese would just basically switch to grains and other things. And I think, you know, if you look at the 45 year plan, it does have uh, self-sufficiency targets for basic grains. But I think that's basically assuming uh, peacetime conditions. I actually don't think there would be anything like widespread famines in China elsewhere um, because China is not not a net, net exporter of food. I, I think it would be maybe in some ways less disruptive than Russia and Ukraine because those are actually major net exporters of grain. Um, Jude, I imagine one model that uh, leaders in Beijing might be hoping for in this scenario is something around, like akin to post Tiananmen, where you did have sanctions, um, but it didn't sort of rupture the future trajectory of China being able to engage and trade with the world. Um, why do you think that a scenario like this? You know, first of all, um, horrific as Tiananmen was, it was a purely domestic event. Um, it's a little bit like the international reaction to, say, Xinjiang or even Hong Kong, which um, elicited a great deal of external concern and uh, criticism. But Ultimately, even Hong Kong is, is China's de jure territory and was a, was a domestic matter. Um, Taiwan is not seen um, as, a, as a domestic event. Um, in China, of course, it is, but it is not uh, internationally. 
Um, the second point is I, and I want to be careful here, but a counterfactual or where, you know, China made an attack on Taiwan in 19, you know, 99 or 2003, um, uh, I think has a different outcome than an attack in 2022 or 2023, given the state of the U.S. bilateral relationship with China, the degree of uh, hostility that's already existing towards China now. Um, and especially, I think, in a post-Ukraine world, given how um, we are now in just a sort of a new geopolitical arena. So I think the, the cost acceptance threshold in the United States has, has gone up appreciably vis-a-vis China just in the last couple of years and certainly over the last um, nine months. But I just do want to say you're asking a question that now gets into the really important dynamics of we don't know. We do not know exactly what the response would be because we do not know exactly what the course of events would look like. And so Gerard and I try to, as in many ways as we can, italicize, embolden, underline, um, put exclamation marks behind some some comments where we just are saying this is a stylized thought exercise, not a prediction of the future. And I think as we're having a discussion on ensuring that Beijing is sufficiently deterred such that it never contemplates such a risky event, even if even if our underlying assumption is they have some recognition of the costs, you know, if states always internalize the full cost equation of of an invasion or a war, we would have far fewer wars. So states are very very bad de- at decision making, and I don't see any reason why China is necessarily immune from that. But this is why I think, and I'll get to just if I get prescriptive for one second. Um, the U.S. and G7 economies who are invested in avoiding this outcome, starting to build credible signals of intent um, of what they would be prepared to do, such that China understands that it, it's th- that that some of the dynamics we're talking about of imposition of sanctions, ostracism of the Chinese market, you know, MNCs and investors moving their capital to other locations are not seen as just flippancy, but are seen as actual credible commitments is very, very uh, imperative. Some of the statements you've seen, such as when U.S. banks were hauled up on Capitol Hill, I don't know if you saw that a couple months ago and sort of snapped the salute and said, you know, I, I, Captain, we're patriotic capital. You know, that's not a credible, that's not a credible statement. So I think moving to something which is much more uh, of a signal to Beijing that we're working the problem set and that this is not this is not 1989. You know, Brent Scowcroft is not coming in, you know, to secretly tell you all is okay. Um, so that's, that's my view, but I don't know, Gerard, if you see it differently. No, I, I agree with all that. I, I think it's worth pointing out three core assumptions. We make many assumptions in the paper, but there's three that I think are pretty important in shaping our analysis. And they matter more for phases two and three, meaning the, the actual war and, and after war phase. The first assumption, which you say pretty early in the paper, is we're assuming that, that Taiwan it resists at least somewhat and with some credibility, right? We're not saying they win. We're just saying that they, they resist. The second is that the U.S. has at least the uh, governance and diplomatic acumen and intent uh, to organize some type of coalition amongst its allies, even if only in the economic sense. The third, and this is probably the most controversial of the three, is that the U.S. is actually engaged militarily. Now, we're assuming that it's a fairly limited engagement. The U.S. doesn't go all in in total war. And we, and we say explicitly, we're assuming there's no nuclear exchange. But the third assumption is really important in part because, at least in our view, uh, and this is speculative, 
if the U.S. is engaged and we're actively fighting the PRC and the U.S. is sustaining, let's say, conservatively thousands, if not tens of thousands of casualties amongst sailors, airmen, and others, I think the U.S. population is going to be losing its mind. And, and I, I, I think this is where we get into one of the major discontinuities uh, where people say things like, oh, but Americans wouldn't be able to function without their cell phones. I don't know. I'm not so sure about that. I think once people start seeing people dying, uh, the, the, it, it goes beyond the purely rational. And it certainly goes beyond the economic balance sheet approach that a lot of people seem to think is going to be a, you know, a compelling deterrent, including for the United States. Right. I, I just don't think that's true once the bullets start flying. Yeah. I mean, this is the this comes to the key question of how credible do you really want your deterrence to be? Right. Um, because, Jude, I think you're completely right that right now you can. You can imagine a world in which a U.S. president is staring at a 5% hit to didn't reset, uh, you know, an instant recession and says, you know what? Taiwan, they didn't try that hard. They're really far away. It's not worth it. Um, I think I think it would. It, it, and even if you have, you know, a G7 statement and a, like a really nice 10 point plan and a 50 page document like, hey, if you do this, we're going to do that. Um, it's still going to come down to leadership at making a decision uh, during and after the conflict to to pull that lever and really inflict the pain both on uh, the both on China and, you know, uh, of course, by the on the U.S. too. But sort of the 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 piece that Gerard is, is alluding to, you can pre-commit by putting a lot more American troops on Taiwan than are currently there. And there's this big debate on, you know, to what extent is that uh, Im an important deterrence versus a, um, uh, you know, versus something that would like actually raise the, the chance of conflict, dude. I mean, just to, just to add to this too, though, I mean, I think we're, we're um, as, as three Americans here, we're being sufficiently narcissistic that we're only talking about this as if this is like the U.S. and China. But the critical factor shaping as much U.S. behavior and response would be partners and sure. allies in the region. I mean, look, if, if we have no allies in, in, in Asia, we don't really have much of a problem with China. A, a lot of the reason we are rubbing up against China is because we have our most trusted, you know, some of our most trusted allies and a whole deg wide degree of partners who expect the United States to be a key security provider, right? So um, if, if Japan and, and South Korea and the Philippines and Thailand and Australia all shrug their shoulders, um, I guess we, the president here could do that calculation of saying 5% hit to GDP, you know, so we're going to stay home. I doubt that's going to be the, doubt that's going to be the case, but you're right, Jordan, of like, you know, these are, these are known unknowns about the precise psychology of, of conflict. I should say though, this also exists for China and you've got to imagine that there are going to be many Chinese citizens and we are just seeing right now a fairly sufficient out, um, outpouring of anger and frustration about sacrifice the party thinks the people should make that the people don't think they should make, and rightfully yep. so. If you've got body bags coming home, God forbid, body bags coming home, back to Fujian, back to Guangdong, back to you know Anhui, back to Beijing, back to elite cities, you know, in a conflict that is not sufficiently understood for the why are we doing this, then I can imagine a lot of these pressures that we're saying would apply to to the United States would would apply to, um, to to China as well, and that's why one of the assumptions we made in this in a conflict phase is 
China's going to become much more repressive domestically because as you have conflict and the necessary, you know, the attendant costs associated with that, social, economic, the party is going to be fighting abroad and fighting domestically to, to maintain control. Yeah, I, I just wanted to go back a little bit to your, your comment about a potential U.S. president deciding, look, it's not worth to hit the GDP, let's not fight. I, I'll concede that that's a, you know, a possible pathway, but um, that assumes that there's a degree of escalation control. That decision might be made for the president. So, for example, if the PLA starts by attacking U.S. forces in the region, like in Japan, um, I think the U.S. is going to be committed. It's going to be hard for the U.S. to back down after that. And so uh, while, you know, you can imagine it being possible, it's hard, it's hard to, to put the genie back in the bottle or whatever the analogy is once the thing starts. Another thing I think we should talk about when talking about allies and partners, which, which Jude raised a topic, is how do they react economically? And we talked a little bit about sanctions. And I think um, under any scenario, the U.S. is using some sanctions. It might be minor. It's debatable whether the U.S. would use any severe sanctions like on, on financial institutions ahead of the, a conflict. But I think once the shooting starts, and especially if U.S. forces are actually engaged, I would bet there will be severe sanctions. And in fact, the conflict itself would be a type of sanction anyway. It would be yeah. so disruptive. So it's almost like it's a sunk cost at that point. So people saying like, oh, the U.S. wouldn't actually sanction the PBOC. You sick of, you sick of U.S. aircraft carrier? I think we will. Yeah. So, Gerard, how do you think the U.S. allies would take to potential sanctions? I think if the U.S. is engaged militarily, um, the U.S. will use all of its leverage, maybe trying to be polite at first and maybe strong army if necessary, to basically get the G7 in line with those those sanctions. Because a point we make, and, and I, I think this is something that maybe is not fully appreciated, is a lot of people say, well, look at, look at how important China is as a market. You know, German firms need it or Europeans in general. Okay, that's true. But you know what's way more important? The United States. And those companies and those governments would, during the crisis, I think, have an expectation that the future of China's economy, putting aside the political aspect, is definitely not going to be positive. And on top of that, you have one of their important allies and their security guarantor, maybe in some cases, basically offering an ultimatum and saying, look, we're calling in all of our chips in this one. You're either with us or against us. And I actually suspect that, say, Japan, the EU, basically the G7 would, would go along with it. So you, you would basically need... For, for the U.S. to shrug their shoulders, you would need basically need Americans not to die, um, ally, U.S. allies to either not care or a president to not care about allies, uh, East and Southeast Asia. Uh, and that seems like pretty unlikely, but not totally Again, implausible. Well, but Jordan, I think um, a fairly quick military victory on the island and little to no... So the, you know, whoever is president of Taiwan would have to fold pretty quickly and you'd have to have no real counter, you know, counterinsurgency. Right. Because I think if you had like you could imagine that world in Ukraine where Zelensky flees and the population folds, I think you could have had a little bit more. You know, you could have a probably quicker Russian victory given lack of sort of U.S. NATO European response. But if there is, you know, if there's a lingering conflict on Taiwan, I think the news cycles of, of Taiwan's dying you know, under Chinese occupation w would make it hard for that shoulder shrug to continue. For so it's 2032. You have your military parade. Uh, you get to say that you've restored the nation. Um, but what are you left with? 
you've taken the beaches, but now the hard part starts, which is, and the United States is the first to tell you that military victories do not translate necessarily into prolonged political victories in occupation. So I think we would have to assume that given levels of nationalism we've seen on Taiwan and, and the fact that this has been an organizing principle of Taiwan foreign policy for a very long time, and especially in a post-Ukraine world, we would see some degree of resolve from the, the Taipei leadership, which would mean taking the capital and installing a, a new functioning effective government would be a prolonged endeavor. I think we can imagine that you would have some degree of counterinsurgency uh, on Taiwan, and especially given the geographical terrain of Taiwan, this would be a difficult one for China to to fight. Even if we imagine that there is very, very low uh, counterinsurgency, you have to imagine that China is perpetually paranoid uh, about counterinsurgency. And so, you know, this is effectively going to be military rule. You now have a island or, which or is, rule in a dumb enough way to create that insurgency. Totally. Yeah, yeah. totally. Um, yeah, this does. I think the point that we're just trying to make here is it's hard to imagine a path where a military victory translates into a sustainable, peaceful political victory, given the, the likely realities. And these realities don't have to be, you know, ultra aggressive Afghan style counterinsurgency to the Soviet Union, right? Even lower threshold than that already makes this very, very difficult to, for China as an occupying power. I know you've covered it a lot in this podcast, Jordan, so we won't belabor it. But I think one of the most frustrating elements of the discussion on Taiwan is that China somehow gets this pristine semiconductor industry, which they can either exploit on the island or they can sort of you know, pick up the secret, you know, TSMC secret sauce and bring it back to China and put the floppy disk, you know, in, 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 in SMIC and then rip and run from there, you know, but obviously if, you know, China's semiconductor industry isn't shattered in an invasion and actually physically destroyed, you'd also then have the human capital problem of you'd have to round up and keep everyone working at these facilities, you know, at gunpoint or somehow co-opted. So, so that I think, you know, Gerard can add the, the list of woes that China would have to deal with, um, but it's hard seeing this as, you know, a, th a lot of people assume the challenge is day zero, the invasion, but actually I think our argument is just from a functional governance and, and perspective, it's actually sort of, you know, day one to day end of occupations are hard. I think adding to that, you know, in the, let's say months or years after the occupation starts, we're talking about would be essentially a middle-income economy trying to absorb a high-income economy, but also policing it and having to rebuild parts of it while also having to rebuild his own country and dealing with massive financial, maybe even, you know, fiscal crises within China. I think, you know, Taiwan's domestic resources would be what they would try to use, but Taiwan wouldn't have much to offer because trade would be so disrupted. I suspect that the Chinese population would object to spending a lot of money rebuilding, you know, their former enemy. It's got, you know, when the U.S. does a type of thing or has historically, the U.S. is fighting countries that are usually substantially poorer than the U.S. and the U.S. has much greater resources. This is the case of like the middle income guy trying to take the rich guy, right? And I think that that's going to be uh, a massive burden for, for the Chinese fiscal system. Um, and Jude already said that like TSMC, if it exists, the, the foreign components, the foreign IP, that's cut off. So that, that the crown jewel, so to speak, of, of, of Taiwan are gone. Um, um, I mean, I think I think you raise an you raise an important point, Gerard. Uh, of domestic uh, side is social stability will be a real question mark 
when you're going through an economic crisis, you digest and get past like the nationalist sugar high of a of, of taking Taiwan. And all of a sudden people are left with lives that are substantially worse than they were before the war starts without a real prospect, your material. Um, and we've already seen, um, you know, I think people kind of forgot potential of this um before of 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 late november and this is going to be this is probably i think to um uh to the ccp when they're looking at taiwan is ultimately what this means i would i find it extremely difficult to imagine under these circumstances that the chinese government would pursue anything like economic liberalization um i don't think their economic policy making is going to get better i think they're basically going to be in um, wartime economy mode, uh, in some senses, maybe for years. So the Chinese economy is going to be, let's say, at best stagnant, if not in severe contraction. Um, and China will, because of those repressive mechanisms, is definitely not going to be hospitable to foreign investment, at least from advanced economies that were previously at least its enemy. So it's sort of like wrecked as the investment destination. And I just, what they're left with is stagnation at best. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's one thing to sort of live through that in the, you know, coming out of a civil war, right. In the, in the fifties and sixties and and seventies, not, not that that time was particularly socially stable, but it's another to have, you know, spent years, um, you know, decades really engaging with the world and the global economy and seeing your life, um, and seeing how much life, how much better your life gets growing at, you know, 10, seven, five, even 3% GDP for a year. And going from that to this state-owned wartime ration driven, uh, shrinking, uh, growth is not going to make a lot of people that happy. Um, once you get over the fact that you're sort of left with this, um, you know, huge mess on your hands of what to do with, uh, what to do with China, uh, excuse I, me, I, of what to do with Taiwan. Just building on that, Jordan, I think your point about the sugar high is well is well put because we we don't want to read too much um, this this concept, which is you know borne out by academic research that you have rising levels of nationalism in China. But I think it's important remembering that abstract nationalism is cheap, um, and I, I would imagine that even the most hardcore nationalist is not willing to trade off. China as a as a growing, strong, prosperous country, increasingly engaged in and in many ways helping to shape, you know, international order, trade all that to get Taiwan. And and as you say, you know, you know, revert back to this this kind of autarkic wartime economy. And and that's where I do think the protests going on, we're we're recording this on December first. The protests going on right now are are important in that respect because they show that you know, for all the discourse in Beijing about a people's war and sacrifice, you know, most people just want to live a good life. Um, and, you know, nationalism in the United States is cheap because we're usually fighting wars in far-flung paces where the cost is really concentrated on very small number of communities here in the United States. I bet U.S. nationalism would, would decline precipitously if we were paying the full cost, both in geographic proximity and economic terms for, for all of our costly foreign policy mistakes. So um, I would imagine, you know, Beijing has some concept uh, of this, but I think as external observers, you know, I hear people say like, oh yeah, the Chinese people would love to take Taiwan. But I think that the part that they don't say is the next part, which is sure, but at what price?
You know, it's interesting thinking, uh, I, I just read a piece today sort of reflecting on why you haven't seen mass protests in Russia over the past few months. And some of the arguments that were made were, look, there's still an escape valve. People can leave if they really want to. The deaths aren't exorbitant. The economy wasn't already wasn't really growing that fast. And the sort of shock to the system from all the sanctions hasn't been um, quite as acute as maybe, you know, folks in the U.S. Treasury Department had hoped in um, uh, in, in February and March. And you guys make a pretty convincing case um, that a lot of those assumptions do not apply in the context of what we'd see. It's an interesting it's an interesting thought experiment of what you see for China around its periphery. Um, you know, of course, we've been isolating this in good laboratory fact, you know, to one specific area domain of, of conflict. But of course, you know, China has simmering just on with a number of, of uh, its peripheral neighbors. And also, of course, domestically within China, if you're thinking about if, you know, populations or areas that China perceives to be sort of restive, like in Tibet, and you know, those that it's a very, very fluid situation. And if you start to have a, 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 an occupation of Taiwan, you know, result in some of the costs that we have just been describing, you can imagine where, you know, social divisions domestically really begin to stress and strain. And so you're going to see China, you know, domestic security services pulled to the border regions. I mean, I'm not enough of an expert on Indian foreign policy to know how India reacts to a Taiwan invasion. I would imagine if I'm the Indian army, I'm wondering, I'm questioning about the sanity uh, of, of Chinese foreign policy decision-making and the PLA leadership. So I, I'm probably preparing for some sort of conflict on, on the border, or if I'm smarter, I'm gonna take advantage uh, of Chinese distraction and try to claw back some territory. I'm not enough of a DPRK expert to know how Kim Jong-un responds to this. I would imagine I imagine it's not just quietly. And then, of course, a big one is what is Russia's involvement here? I mean, part of the underlying assumption behind some of the strengthening of relationship between Moscow and Beijing has been a kind of a question of, um, you know, is China trying to build some some deeper security relationship that um, will be in some in some fashion into a potential conflict that doesn't have to be that. Moscow is deploying troops in an actual domain of conflict. It could be that China, Russia is just stepping up its operations in other peripheral areas. So uh, I do think that's probably, you know, another level of analysis is, you know, if they get it, if they get Taiwan and it's not going well, what sort of fissures does that, you know, create? I think, I think that, you know, the higher level simplified point is just China's neighbors are going to be very anxious uh, and I think it's reasonable to expect that a lot of them are going to want to build up their own militaries. One of the like many embedded layers of assumptions in the paper is how how is the U.S. perceived to have intervened, or you know what degree did they commit militarily? If the U.S. is seen as not that supportive and sort of just not reliable, then I think countries like Japan have all the more incentive to to arm. If the U.S. is seemed as reliable, then there's still, you know, the diplomatic leverage that the U.S. has as a distant security guarantor. So I, in either direction, I don't see it as being favorable for China. That's no. Sorry. Um, so, so what's the what's the takeaway for, uh, you know, policymaker, legislator uh, around the world? 
you know, I think I think one is as just an analytical framework. Um, although we're positing here um, indirectly that you know Beijing likely understands the the high degree of cost that it would accept. I think we also have to recognize that you could make the same assessment, or you could have about Putin you know, uh, uh, on February twenty second that this was going to result in you know an um, uh, poor Russia, and yet as as we were saying earlier, states make bad decisions all the time. I mean, one thing that I've been saying is I, I feel like if we are if we're seeing an increasingly erratic um, uh, uh, decision making in Beijing where they're not able to appropriately balance costs and benefits, that would be fungible across a number of policy areas, not just in in this one narrow slice on Taiwan. So we should definitely be looking for I don't know if this is a word, but erraticism. Uh, in in Chinese policy making, policy making more broadly, um, that is really clarifying that we're seeing a, a, a serious degradation of uh, the quality of cost benefit analysis. I think just my one prescriptive thing would be <clears throat> we need to help Beijing understand the costs if if they might not. And so one of those would be, I think if we um, I think if we make more concerted efforts to show Beijing that we're credibly working the problem of how do we build a coalition to um, uh, to punish China um, if it undertakes this, such that it, it can understand that it essentially Taiwan comes at the cost of being a part of the global economy, and so that might be um, uh, lower lower key credible statements that show the United States is working with. G7 coalition partners to think about the sanctions piece. Um, I think maximalist statements from the United States um, and trying to strong arm G7 uh, economies to, to making the most extreme statements are unhelpful because A, the, the higher threshold the statement you demand from people, the, the, the smaller that club will. Um, and B, I just likely to see, be seen as Beijing as, as not particularly credible. I think what would worry Beijing is if it saw you know, G7 economies having regular meetings were on the, you know, on the, on the door, the, the, you know, the G7 sanctions task force. Um, I don't actually think you need to come up with much specifically out of those because that will just make this a prolonged effort. Um, But just showing them that they were working the problem. Yeah. I mean, just making clear that sort of national greatness on any other dimension besides territorial revanchism will come at the cost of your territorial revanchism seems like the calculation you'd really want leadership to make. And, and even if you do that, you know, you can have a, you can have Xi Jinping at 87 who still has power and just gets it in his head. This is the only thing you want to do. You can still have some sort of like, like power struggle where the PLA gets involved and someone wants to, you know, show that they're the boss by, by doing something in Taiwan. But yeah. I, I think the least you can hope to make um, clear as possible to Beijing is that this is not this by, uh, under no circumstances is going to be a, a sort of military walk in the park and be a sort of economic or diplomatic one in the uh, in, in the fallout, even if all the cards fall your way um, in a in the actual kinetic conflict. An obvious implication is that, you know, this reaffirms the importance of deterrence in a broad sense. But I think what we're trying to add to that discourse is introducing the idea of, dis- of discontinuity. So, for example, Beijing might think this month that, you know, the current German government is not aligned really with U.S. economic objectives with China. 
and that might be true, but they should not assume that under a severe, you know, stress scenario that the German government is still going to have the same position. I don't think it will. And as Jude said, like, I think that the operative actor here is something like the G7 or G7 plus. We didn't mention this before, but we're basically assuming the entire developing world and emerging markets are more or less neutral. Um, and at least after the conflict, you know, we're not trying to stop commodities trade or whatever. That, that keeps going. But from an economic perspective, uh, China without the G7 as an export market, a supplier of technology, is in really bad shape. The G7 is going to hurt too. But I think on aggregate, we have both the material and technological resources to eventually recover from that, even if it means, you know, having to spend a fortune to to move production outside of China, which could take, you know, five to 10 years in, in, in a sort of robust sense. But it is doable. Look, I, one very banal point I make is that the United States and the G7 were rich well before China was integrated into the world economy. OK, so there is a world, a darker world in which China is basically excluded from from that path to development. But the G7 just kind of chugs along after a period of recovery. And I think that's what we're trying to warn. Um, you know, it's a it's a good point, Gerard, because I think you can see analysts in Beijing making the mistake that, you know, the German, um, um, you know, the German chancellor showing up to Beijing and, and wanting to as, um, you know, would would lead you to conclude the same thing would likely happen after a war. And it's just not true. But it, you can make the answer to that question easier by doing the sort of stuff that. Here, here. Agreed. Um, let's uh, let's conclude with some homework for grad students out there. Um, you guys have, you know, over the course of this conversation, like said, oh, you know, we might want to do this, might want to do that. But like, what are the uh, if if folks are interested in doing uh, sort of this continuing on with this sort of scenario analysis, what I'm. Uh, what homework do you want to assign out? Um, I think there's maybe some homework to be done on historical analogies, although they're not going to be all that relevant. I think the closest you're going to get might be like glo globalization 1.0 era before World War I. Um, more broadly, I think there's plenty of work to be done in terms of assessing economic uh, interconnectedness, not just between the U.S. and China, but also sort of the whole world. Um, but But I think that, you know, Part of what we're trying to do here is get past all the specifics of that and say that, look, however bad the disruption is, there is a political and, and diplomatic trajectory here that is almost uniformly bleak for Beijing. Um, and so I think maybe just thinking more through scenarios analysis and thinking through how when you when you try to model this stuff, you're not you're not holding one variable fix. So it's not just China takes Taiwan, it's China takes Taiwan anger is a G7, kills American sailors, uh, and isolates itself diplomatically, right? So that's where it gets complicated, but it's really an interesting intellectual exercise, if bleak. I was thinking almost every bullet point in the paper is an area where Gerard and I said you could, we should probably do a follow-on, um, and one that brings some quantification to some of the qualitative assessments that we made. I think as an intellectual puzzle for for more in the sort of military strategy side, um, I think it would be worth us thinking about what the um, proximate reasons China would use a, 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 an attack, invasion, or blockade. Um, uh, because right now we just have this lumpy conception of, you know, Xi Jinping wakes up in the middle of the night, has to pee, and on his way to the bathroom thinks, you know what, tomorrow's the day. Or 
he, he flips over the calendar in, you know, 2027 and says, today's the day we're going in boys. Um, but I think thinking through what the sort of lead up to an attack would, would be and look like would be a really important thought exercise is just so we start, you know, getting the wheels spinning. Um, I think the other thing is um, I've wanted to do a study of occupations um, and, you know, envisioning what an actual occupation would look like. So taking that sort of final section of what we did and really building that out, um, I think would be really uh, the, it, the problem set we're trying to solve is, you know, is the military part. And that's the part that's the equation we think Beijing is trying to solve, which is the actual invasion. And I think arguably, if not more important from Beijing's perspective, would be um, w what an occupation looks like. What is their occupation plan? And one country, two systems is not an occupation plan, right? So, you know, looking at what they're writing about how they would um, make Taiwan into an SAR and use a, a one country, two systems framework, that's not, a, it's not occupation strategy, right? So um, I think thinking through, you know, putting as, uh, some of the effort we're, we're, we're spending right now on thinking about what their invasion plan is and starting to think through what an occupation plan would look like would be an important exercise. Because I think we'd set, you know, what Gerard and I were saying earlier in the paper, they face, you know, a large number of, of function, functional uh, challenges. And I think this is going to, that's an important exercise for reinforcing the idea that um, whatever, even if we think an occupation would be hard as it is, we need to work to make sure Beijing appreciates um, just how 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 difficult day you know day one through day n is. Um, there's a there's a fantastic and totally wild book. I'm going to close this recommending Hawaii under the rising sun: Japan's plans for conquest after Pearl Harbor by John Steffen, who sort of dove into the archives because uh, they thought they were going to take Hawaii. Um, didn't work out that way, but if it would, it would have been a real mess and under no circumstances play out in the timeline that the sort of Imperial Japan assumed it would, um, uh, it would be where, you know, they just like have a lot of fun, like harvesting sugar cane. Um, so, uh, anyways, leave you with that. Uh, June Gerard got a song for this. That's a good question. No, I, I don't, I don't know. One is sufficiently speculative and bleak. Thanks so much for being a part of China talk. Thank you for having us. Make sure.
播，洛基、李麦克、水哥，通通记在这。跟着水哥，每次就有快乐。只要一个眼神，怎么那么帅呢？看你介意的款，你型的款，你嗨的款，有咧算的款哦。水哥拢捌，但是无咧捌。遐有诶，无诶，无咧差。毋是配太大，爱怎讲放假？歹物仔知影通改袂难乱。做代志斟酌搁水开，若是乌白布，你着真正晦气。买到就到即款，讲真诶，其他诶无咧稀罕。爱耍诶浪费你诶时间，安那迄种爱你咪爱博诶，你无得无视。Oh, oh, 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 oh,